uh, willingness to take the most menial task and serve tables, uh, Philip went into some pretty dynamic ministry. So, let's begin in Acts chapter 8. It says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So it's been about six years or so since the resurrection and the ascension. The church has been pretty stable in Jerusalem, growing rapidly. There's been some persecution. You know, Peter and John had to go before the Sanhedrin. But generally speaking, they've been pretty stable there in Jerusalem. And if you'll remember, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what did Jesus say that the disciples were to do? They were to be witnesses for him in Jerusalem in Judea, and then into Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, it wasn't until Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that that began to happen. And it began to happen as a result of the persecution that arose after the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen gave up his life in testimony to Jesus Christ, and that must have emboldened some of the Jewish uh, people. They began to persecute the church. One particular person, Saul... Uh, who was at uh, Stephen's stoning, uh, began to go from house to house and to destroy the church. And literally, in the the Greek, that word destroy, what it means is it's like a wild animal who is mangling its prey. It's just gone crazy, and it's just taking the carcass and swinging it from side to side. Paul had, had lost his control, literally, in his persecution of the church. Later, in, in his epistle to Timothy, he would say to Timothy, I was violently arrogant destroying the church, murdering them, sending them off to prison, doing whatever I could to disrupt what Paul believed, Saul at that time, was uh, a work antithetical to Judaism. So Saul's going around destroying the church. Um, Everybody is getting scattered throughout the region, except through the apostles. Interesting, the apostles stick around in uh, Jerusalem. Now, we know what happened on the night of Jesus' betrayal, All the disciples were scattered, weren't they? But here they're sticking around in Jerusalem and they're maintaining that witness, that testimony of stability. But the rest of the disciples are being scattered throughout uh, Judea into Samaria. Now, you can look at something like that and say, wow, what a terrible time for the church. You know, how difficult it must have been for them. Saul going around uh, destroying, literally, the church. Uh, putting people in prison, murdering some of them, having whole families disrupted. But really, sometimes we don't take the correct perspective. We have our human viewpoint, and then God has his perspective. And things happen to us sometimes that we look at and we say, oh my gosh, where is God in all of this? How can God allow this to happen? And yet, God's viewpoint is, I'm doing my work, I'm accomplishing my purpose. Sometimes circumstances just don't seem right to us, and yet God's at work in them. I sort of feel like I'm exploding up here sometimes. Um, I'm, in my daily devotions, I'm reading through Job right now, and I just got to the part where God begins to rebuke Job. You know, Job has been arguing for his righteousness, for his purity, for the fact that he has not sinned, and, and he's saying, where's God? I want to I tell God, you know, what's going on here. And it, God's um, 
entry into the, the picture, it's like God had a totally different perspective, and he wasn't going to answer Job what his perspective was, but he was doing a work. I think that's true in our lives a lot of times. Sometimes things are happening in our lives that we don't understand. We don't really like the fact that they're happening, but through those things, God is doing a work in us. He's accomplishing his purpose. And we may, at some point, come to understand what that purpose is. Other times, we may not. Here, the purpose is to spread the gospel. Because as they go out, those who were scattered, it says in verse 4, preached the word wherever they went. And Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out and many of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. So Philip is a, a distinct personality who has gone out. There are many others who are going out alongside him. But Philip has gone into Samaria. And this is interesting and important because, again, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said they were to go into Samaria. Now, the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as a half-breed race. Uh, from, from the Assyrian occupation, the Jews were removed, the ten North ten northern tribes, other uh, nationalities were brought in, and the race that developed out of that were the Samaritans. And the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, but Christians did. And so they went out into Samaria. Philip began to preach, and he began to perform miracles among these people and exorcisms, and there was great joy as a result of that. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. So there's a big revival happening here in Samaria. And part of this is happening because of the groundwork that has been laid by Jesus Christ himself. In John chapter 4, you remember Jesus said, I needs must go through Samaria. Now normally the Jews did not travel through Samaria. They would go down through the Jordan Valley and avoid Samaria when they went to Jerusalem from the Galilee. But Jesus said, I must go through Samaria. And we know this story. As they went through Samaria, Jesus met the woman at the well. And through his testimony to her, the whole community came out and began to meet with Jesus. And we're, we're amazed at his teaching. And so Jesus had laid the groundwork back then in his ministry for what was happening now with Philip. And I think that is so important for us to keep in mind as believers the conversation you have with your neighbor, with your coworker, with your friend may not culminate in a great move of God, but it may be a part of the progression towards what God wants to do in that person's life. So here there's a great a revival occurring. Um, the sorcerer, Simon, had amazed the people, and even he was astonished by the work that Philip was doing, was uh, baptized as a result of that. And so when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. 
So it's an interesting thing that happens here. When these be people became believers, believed the preaching of Philip, were baptized as a result of that, it says that the Holy Spirit at that point did not come upon them. Now I want to say to you that when you believe, any one of you here this morning, believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit does come into you. There are three different prepositions that are important to understand with regards to the Holy Spirit. The first Greek preposition is en, E-N, and that means within. And so when we become believers in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into us and resides in us. It says in Romans chapter 8 that he who does not have the Spirit of God is not God's. So we, we have the Spirit in us when we believe, when we are baptized. So these people were believers. They had the Holy Spirit in them, but they did not have the experience of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And that's another Greek preposition, epi, E-P-I. And that's what happened in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit came upon them in cloven tongues of fire and began to speak in other tongues and they were empowered for ministry. That had not happened here. And it was a very important and distinct experience for the early church, that epi experience where the Holy Spirit came upon because it was a very visual experience, as we'll see in a moment. So they were waiting for that to happen. Now, why did the apostles need to come and to pray for the, these new believers in Samaria? I believe it was because it was the first move of the church out of Jerusalem. Up until this point, remember that the, the church had been pretty localized there in Jerusalem. The apostles were there, and the church was gathering together in Jerusalem. It had not really spread out. And so for this move of God to begin to move outside of Jerusalem into Judea and into Samaria and ultimately into other parts of the world, there needed to be an apostolic affirmation that the work was indeed of God. So Peter and John were the emissaries from the apostles in Jerusalem. They went, they laid their hands on these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now how do we know that they received the Holy Spirit? Well, let's look at verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon saw what was happening when the apostles laid their hands on these believers, and he wanted to have that same ability. So what was he seeing? Well, it was a, it was a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It was no doubt these new believers speaking in tongues, uh, prophesying, doing all the things that we saw in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. It was a very visual experience of the Holy Spirit coming upon them and empowering them, a recognition by those around them that these people now are a part of this movement, a part of the body of Christ. They had had the Holy Spirit in them, but now the Holy Spirit was coming upon them, and there was a recognition that they were a part of the movement of God. And Simon, seeing this, wanted to have that power. And so he offers Peter and John money so that he might do the same thing. Now, think about Simon. Up until this point, he professed that he was someone great within the, the, the arena of this community in Samaria. He performed magical arts for the people, and the people were amazed and astonished. But when Philip came along and the reality of true power was revealed, the people followed after Philip and the message that Philip was giving rather than Simon. And Simon was jealous. 
He had lost his prestige. He has lost his place. And here was an opportunity, he believed, to once again uh, find that position of prominence. Now, it's not unusual for musicians to pay for a trick. That's oftentimes what happens within uh, the circle of magicians. They will pay one another for a, a trick or for a magic uh, act. Um, so Simon was just sort of following that uh, pathway that his profession often did. But what he did not understand was this was a way different dynamic than dealing with a circle of magicians. Peter answered him and said, May your money perish with you, because you thought that you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. So was Simon really a believer? If you, if you read through that um, condemnation that Peter just gave to him, you sort of wonder if he was really a believer. Peter says that you need to repent of this wickedness, that you're full of bitterness, captive to sin. That does not sound like a new believer to me. Because we're not captive to sins. Just like the song we sang this morning, my chains are gone. I've been set free. There's a joy in my heart. I'm not trying to attain any kind of worldly prominence um, because of that gift of God that I've been given. So I think Simon here is what you would call a tear. You know, the, the passage there where Jesus was teaching about the wheat and the tares and how the evil one came in and planted tares among the wheat. And they were very difficult to tell apart. And in the harvest, uh, the harvester said, well, we'll wait till the, the harvest, then we'll cut them up and we'll put the tares in one place, the wheat in another, and we'll burn up the tares. I think Simon here is a tear. And Simon throughout history, um, through early church history, really be became very well known for apostasy, for uh, um, he was an, in some uh, early church history was said to be a teacher of Gnosticism. Um, one early church legend said that Simon went mad and buried himself. So who knows for sure what happened with Simon. But what we do know is that his heart really wasn't right here. He's, he has a misperception of spiritual power and of the Holy Spirit. He thinks it's something that can be purchased with money. And so Simon answers Peter and says, now notice this, this is interesting. Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said to me may happen. Does that sound like true repentance to you? It's like, oh, man, I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. What he's concerned about is the consequence of his sin. Not the fact that he has sinned, but rather he wants to avoid the consequence. Again, perhaps another uh, illustration that he was not a true believer. He went through the motions, and this is, I think, really important for us as church people. Because it's very easy for us, I think, at times to come into church week after week and make a profession of faith, but to not really possess that faith, to not make the journey from the head to the heart. Those 18 inches from the head to the heart have kept a lot of people out of eternity with God. They have the right head knowledge, but their heart has not been impacted. Their lives have not been transformed. They're not putting their faith to work. You know, the demons believe James said, and shudder. The demons know that Jesus is the Christ. James said, you must have a faith that works, that can be seen 
that is put into motion. It's not just a mental assent to something. Simon was astonished by the miracles that Philip was performing. That was sort of his area of interest. And that's why he followed after Philip. He saw the miracles and he wanted to possess that power. But he wasn't listening to the message and allowing it into his heart to transform him and to change him. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now this must have been hard. Stop and think about it. Philip is having some very successful ministry here. Miracles, exorcisms, great joy in the city. People are coming from all around the region to hear him preach. Converts all over the place. And then an angel of the Lord shows up and said, Philip, I want you to go to the desert. Really? Lord, you just don't understand what's happening here. Next week we have a meeting, and there are a lot of posters that have been put out about that meeting. I've got to be here. It's been advertised. I don't know if that really happened or not. But, 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 but God has a different purpose here. God says, go to the desert road that heads to Gaza. Leave this place of apparently productive ministry where things are happening, where my spirit is moving, and go to a desert place by yourself. What I want to say about Philip is that throughout his testimony in the Bible, what we see about Philip is that he's a man that is obedient step by step. He's called out to serve tables, and he goes into that, and he serves. He's called into Samaria to, to be an evangelist, and he preaches to the crowds, and he does that. Here we're going to see him being called to a desert place to minister one-on-one -on -one to someone, and he does that. Later, we'll see Philip up in Caesarea in Acts chapter 21, and he has four virgin daughters who are all prophetesses. So he gets called into ministry to his family. So, you know, he doesn't have the whole picture. He doesn't know everything that's going to happen, but each time God tells him, this is what I want you to do, Philip goes. He takes that one step of obedience that leads to the next, and before you know it, very fruitful. Very fruitful. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. Some of your Bibles will say Candace, but it really was a position, positional title. It wasn't a name, a proper name. It was a positional title. So he was in service to the queen of the Ethiopians. Uh, this was down in southern Egypt in the area uh, where the Nubians lived. Um, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. And the spirit told Philip. So first an angel of the Lord tells Philip, leave Samaria, go to the road on to Gaza. Here Philip is on that road to Gaza, sees this man, and the spirit, the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, go up to that chariot and stay near to it. In verse 30, it says, Philip then ran up to the chariot. He didn't contemplate. He didn't say, okay, is this really God speaking to me? He heard the voice of the Spirit, and he ran in obedience to the chariot. And he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And Philip asked him, do you understand what you are reading? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. 
This is out of Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. So here's a God appointment. This man, the, the Ethiopian eunuch, is a searching soul. He's gone up to Jerusalem to worship. He's probably not a Jewish proselyte, but he probably is a God-fearer. He went up to Jerusalem because he admired the Jewish religion, and he knew that was a place where, where truth was being taught. So he went up to worship. As a eunuch, he couldn't get into the inner courts to worship anyway. Um, but he is reading the scriptures. He's searching. He's seeking God. And the Spirit is involved. The Spirit has told Philip to go up to the chariot, and Philip has ran in response. And he's reading the scriptures. He's searching them, seeking God, and seeking the answers for the emptiness in his heart in those scriptures. And God has led him to this place in Isaiah. Now remember at this time, there's no New Testament. It's all Old Testament. That's all that Philip has to work with. And right now, God has led him to the preeminent place that you want to be in the Old Testament, that you want to preach Jesus Christ. It's awesome. So the Philip asked, or the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with the very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Now I wonder, how many of us here this morning, if we only had the Old Testament, and someone was reading out of Isaiah, and they said, what's this all about? Would we be able to explain the gospel through the Old Testament? Wouldn't it have been interesting to be in that chariot at this time, listening to Philip proclaim Jesus to this eunuch? To, to use which scriptures from the Old Testament? Was it the proto-evangelism there in Genesis 3.15 where he would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise his heel? Was it something else out of Isaiah? Perhaps Isaiah 35 where it talks about all of the miraculous works that the Messiah would do. Or was it out of Daniel where it talks about the final kingdom where the Messiah would come and would crush all of the other kingdoms and establish an eternal kingdom? There's lots of good Old Testament that can proclaim Jesus Christ. What did Philip use? We don't know. It doesn't say here. But he did preach to him the good news about Jesus Christ. And they traveled along the road and they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? So not only did Philip preach Jesus to him, but he obviously had talked to him about baptism and the purpose of baptism. Why do we get baptized? To identify with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This had been proclaimed to the, the eunuch by Philip. And so he gave orders to stop the chariot and they both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. So here, this eunuch has heard the gospel presented to him from Philip. He's heard that gospel presented, and he's believed it. Some of your other, uh, some other translations also include a verse where Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that really is where it all happens, is that belief about who Jesus is and our action upon that belief. And here the eunuch takes action. He says, I want to identify with Jesus Christ. Here's some water. Can we stop? What prevents me from being baptized? And so they go down into the water, and Philip baptizes him, identifying him with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he comes up out of the water, and it says, the Spirit of the Lord then suddenly took Philip away. It's interesting. The word there, took Philip away. The phrase there is the Greek word harpazo, which is translated uh, 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as uh, rapturo in the Latin Vulgate, which is where we get our term rapture from. So it's the same meaning. It's, it's where the Spirit of the Lord came in and supernaturally took Philip away from this place, took him somewhere else. We'll, we'll find out later it was in Azotus or Ashdod in Gaza. But there was a supernatural event, and he removed Philip from the presence of the eunuch. Now, this is interesting to me. I mean, certainly it's interesting because of the supernatural aspect of it and because it's connection to what's going to happen to us as believers at that moment when, when the trump of God sounds and the dead in Christ rise first and we who are alive and remain are caught up in the air with him. That excites me. But it's also interesting to me that here's this eunuch who has been searching. He finally gets the answer from this guy about what he's been searching for. And suddenly that guy's taken away from him. I mean, does God not have a plan here? What's going on? I mean, because usually after we lead people to the Lord, we're supposed to disciple them, right? Train them up in, 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 in the ways of the Lord. And, and That doesn't happen here. All this guy knows is Jesus. He doesn't have a, a discipler to take him and, and to help him to grow in the Lord. God's taken that away from him. But look at this. But he, that, that is the Ethiopian eunuch, went on his way rejoicing. He didn't have a discipler, but he had the Spirit of God, and he had the Lord, and he had the joy of the Lord. Jesus said in John 15, he said, my joy I give you. I want your joy to be full. So this is, this is a, a really important thing to me because so often as Christians, we lose that, that joy. The circumstances of life crash around us. We, you know, like with the persecution, we think, God, where are you? What's going on? How, how are you in this? When in fact, he is absolutely in the middle of it. But that joy is our strength. The joy of the Lord is what carries us through. Eunuch didn't have a discipler, but he had the joy of the Lord that carried him on his way. And we don't know, the Bible doesn't say, but history does teach us that from a very early stage in history, somewhere around the first to second century, the Coptic church emerged in Egypt. And it's been present ever since. Was this Ethiopian eunuch the one who began that work of God down there in Egypt. For the next 2,000 years, this Coptic church has been present. Even today, when, when the uh, Muslim Brotherhood was active in Egypt and there was that Arab Spring that was going on, it was the Coptic Christians who were being persecuted. Do they exist because of this Ethiopian eunuch's encounter with Philip? We don't know, but it very well could be. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus, traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea, which is where he settled, where he raised his family, where he had the four uh, virgin daughters who were prophetesses. But where another very interesting thing in Scripture happened, and this is what I want to conclude with. Turn with me. Um, Jason, if you would go to Acts chapter 21. I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 7. We began the study this morning with Saul breathing threats against the church, going from house to house like a ravenous animal, just tearing the church apart, separating families, sending some to prison, 
having others killed, devastating the church. As a result of that, Philip ended up in Samaria and later in Gaza and finally in Caesarea. But in Acts chapter 21, and next week we get to learn of Saul's conversion, uh, which will be quite, quite an interesting study. But here in Acts chapter 21, it's talking about Paul's missionary journeys. It says, We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus, where we were greeted, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So Paul and his company stop off in Caesarea at the house of Philip. Now think about this. Sometimes we read through the, the scriptures and we don't stop to think what the true circumstances must have been like. But Saul had persecuted the church, had been violently arrogant against it, destroying families. And yet, here, Philip welcomes him into his home as a guest. All that history is still the same. Think about how difficult it must have been for Paul as a minister, because he testified to it in several places in Scripture about how violently he persecuted the church. And when he would go into to churches, and when he would meet with Jewish people, oftentimes, no doubt, he confronted people whose family members he had put in prison or killed. Philip was forced to move out of Jerusalem as a result of Saul's persecution. And yet here they are reconciled. Here they are as brothers in Christ sitting at a table fellowshipping. Only the power of God can accomplish that. Some of us here this morning have experienced situations where um, we've been hurt. People have hurt us. Maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally. But what I want to suggest to you is that regardless of the degree or the the intent of that harm that has happened to you, the power of God to work through you for forgiveness is present. You see, Paul had to forgive himself too. He couldn't continue to minister unless he understood that he was forgiven by God as well. But he also couldn't minister in the churches and around these Jewish people and sit down at a table with Philip fellowship unless they all knew that they had forgiven one another and that they were forgiven by God. So I want to challenge you. I want to conclude with a, a bit of a challenge this morning to not allow the enemy to obtain a foothold in your life because of unforgiveness. Because I'm fairly certain that most of us have not experienced what some of those people did experience at the persecution of Saul. And yet, the power of forgiveness was present. Likewise, here this morning, I just want to exhort and encourage anyone who is struggling with forgiveness, not being able to forgive someone who has done something, who has hurt you, to just allow the joy of the Lord once again to refresh you and to come in to you and to lift that chain 
of unforgiveness. So that you too, just like Philip did, can once again sit at a table with that person, fellowship with them, and know that your chains are gone. You've been set free. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you that it's true. We're just not studying a fairy tale here. It's, it's the real deal. And your spirit fills us. You are in us. You are with us. You come upon us and empower us for ministry. And I just ask, Lord, here this morning that you would take each of our hands, hold each of our hearts close to you. Where healing is necessary, Father, may we be touched with your healing love. Where empowerment for ministry is needed, whether it's evangelism or teaching or in the family, Lord God, would you empower us by your spirit and anoint us for the work that you have called us to do. May each one of us, Lord, like the, the Ethiopian eunuch, allow the work of your sovereign spirit to fill our soul May we look to Scripture as our source. May we become true servants and just turn this community upside down, Lord God, for the gospel, just like Philip did there in Samaria. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to sing, He Leadeth Me, final hymn.
All right, this morning, joys or concerns that anyone has would like to share? Prayer requests, anyone? Yes. Others? Yes, Joel. As many of you know, Jim and I went to Chico about 12 years ago. We really appreciate Brother Bernard and Pam and his wife, and uh, her and uh, Father Jim uh, and their uh, other uh, brother uh, at the Federal Health Hospital. So please pray for the family. It is a serious last name is now, um, but Carol is uh, in hospice. She's on the receiving end of it this time, um, down in Santa Fe, and uh, they have given her several weeks. It's been a really great time, I understand, for healing and Dave and the daughters to be there with her, but please just lift her up in prayer, because many of you, your family or, or your friends, have been blessed by the service Carol gave uh, when she was here in hospice, as a hospice nurse for many years. quick pastor search update. We've begun uh, the interview process. So I uh, just uh, ask for your prayers for discernment and uh, that God's will will be done. And that's your update. Do you have any other questions? We can talk to any of the committee members. Thank you. 
Thank you. 